Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. If we've not met, I would love to meet with you after the service and get a chance to introduce ourselves. Uh, yeah, and kids, I am mindful that you are in the service this morning, so I will do my best to be as succinct as possible, but no promises. How's this? I promise this will be the last sermon for the rest of the year. Wait, wait, wait. Why are there adults applauding? Come on now. That's it. It's going to be long now. Just kidding. Well, it is good to be together. And yeah, mindful that this is the last day of a year and thankful for all that God has brought us through in this last year and the ways that he has blessed us. Uh, let me just say a quick prayer before we get into the word this morning. Lord, we love you so much. We have so much to be grateful for. We also have a lot of maybe unfulfilled hopes and expectations from this last year, maybe hurts and wounds. And so we still come up to you, Lord, and we ask you, would you give us your peace and your healing? Would you help us by bringing your comfort into our lives? And Lord, may we also be a blessing and comfort to others. Uh, we just pray now, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and minds to what your spirit has to say to us. And Lord, I pray with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, author C.S. Lewis describes how the citizens of the land of Narnia, they lived under a witch's enchantment where it was always winter and never Christmas. Can you imagine if Christmas was something that you'd only heard about but never experienced? What if you were told that one day this witch's spell would be broken and that Christmas would come, and it could be any day, but you just have to wait. You have to be ready. Now, we just celebrated Christmas a week ago, and I'm not sure that anything raises expectations quite like Christmas does. Kids, they anticipate days without school and gifts to open. Grandparents look forward to seeing their children and grandchildren, well... Really, they really look forward to the grandchildren, if we're honest. <laughs> and, you know, for many who struggle with the dark, cold months of winter, Christmas is a reprieve, and the anticipation of it gave us something to get excited about and look forward to. But now that it's done and dusted, now that Christmas is gone, what do we hope for next? Spring break? Easter? Summer holidays, those are months away, right? Can we continue to live with hopeful expectation? Or will we succumb to winter spell that makes us feel disenchanted? Like it's always winter and never Christmas. I think for some of us, that's how we can feel about our faith sometimes, no matter what time of the year it is. Perhaps we started out really well, with great expectations, looking forward to God's promises being fulfilled in our lives. But after a while, maybe after long years of waiting without any fruition, our excitement has turned into resignation, or maybe if we're honest, disappointment. 
perhaps, you know, but in today's scripture, we see that sometimes God fulfills his promises in ways that we would never expect and seldom according to our timelines. But for those who wait with great expectation of God, they are not disappointed. In Luke 2, 22 to 40, it tells us that resilient disciples await. Resilient disciples await. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. It says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's baby Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which have been prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Mary and Joseph had done everything required of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. To await. It means to hope for, to expect, to anticipate. And in this passage, we see those who await, they have not done so for just a few weeks or months or even just a few years. These are believers who have been living in anticipation of God for a lifetime. The story takes place in the temple where Joseph and Mary have come with baby Jesus, and they are there because they are devout Israelites who follow the Torah, the Jewish law. And verses 22 to 24 describes three separate ceremonies that they are recording, that, are rec- that they are observing, that are recorded in God's law. The first is the purification ritual. According to Leviticus 12, birth rendered a woman 
ritually impure. And so after a set period of time, a woman would go to the temple, make the required sacrifice in order to be considered clean, and then she would be ready to worship again. The second ceremony is the presentation of the firstborn to God. Exodus 13 explains, saying, Redeem every firstborn among your sons in the days to come when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every animal's womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Now the third ritual alluded to here is child dedication. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, it tells the story of Hannah, a woman who struggled with infertility for many years. And she prayed, however, that if God would bless her with a child, then she would give the child into the Lord's service. And then God did enable Hannah to conceive. She had a son, named him Samuel, and he grew up to be a faithful minister of Yahweh. Many churches still practice child dedication today, except we don't dedicate the child to the Lord's service as if they have to grow up to be a pastor or missionary. Instead, we dedicate ourselves, the parents, and the believing community to do all we can to train the child up to love and serve God. Now, I think that Luke gives us the details of why Mary and Joseph are at the temple rather than just saying they were there because these details are important. We need to see that Joseph and Mary's faith was vital to them. They didn't just hold faith as some idea in their mind. Rather, they practiced their beliefs by going to the temple, by praying, by following God's law. And it not only had a significant role in their lives, but also an important role in the life and development of Jesus. And this should be an encouragement to any one of us who cares for children or youth, whether we're youth leaders or Sunday school teachers, or whether we're parents or grandparents who are sitting right now this morning with young people who are struggling to listen to a pastor preach. You see, don't stop practicing your faith. Keep trusting God. Keep putting your beliefs into action. Keep reading your Bibles, serving, praying, not only for your own relationship with God, but for the next generation as well. You see, faith isn't just taught. It's caught. I was reminded how our children pick up things, even when we don't implicitly teach it to them, that often they catch these things. The other day, Andrew and I were driving and reminiscing about a time where I was at a stoplight and saw a friend of mine who was waiting at the corner to cross the street. And so I decided to give my horn a little toot toot to grab their attention and to say hi. But as soon as I went toot toot, my two-year-old who was strapped into the back seat said, come on, let's go. If that's not funny to you yet, you'll, you'll think about that one later. Faith isn't just taught, it's caught. I know for me, my adolescent faith was inspired more by my parents who diligently 
read their Bibles and served the church than it was by any inspiring Sunday school lesson or fun youth night. We need to give the next generation a vision for what their relationship with Jesus could be like, and it starts with you and I living our relationships with Christ out in the open. The next person that we encounter in this story is this man named Simeon. Luke describes him as righteous and devout. Now, righteous we often think of as law-abiding or right-living, but when the Bible describes someone as righteous, it's primarily concerned with relationships, with living in harmony with God and others. I'm certain that Simeon's life conformed to the will of God, that he lived obediently to the law and practiced what was there, but his focus wasn't rule-following. Rather, it was keeping in step with a right relationship with God and others. Devotion is often seen as the religious equivalent of patriotism or nationalism. And though it does have those tones of allegiance, the devotion that's described here is relational as well. It's like the loyalty a friend shows another. But with God, it's characterized by admiration and amazement. Verse 25 goes on to describe Simeon as waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation or comfort of Israel refers to the prophetic passages found in Isaiah 40 and 52 that foretell the hope that Israel should expect in a Messiah or a deliverer, a rescuer who would come and save them. These prophecies in Isaiah were made 700 years before Simeon's time. 700 years, and Luke says that Simeon is still waiting for it. 700 years, Simeon is still living in anticipation. 700 years, and Simeon is still hopeful. Talk about being resilient. I have a hard time waiting in line seven minutes at the grocery store. The passage goes on to say that the Holy Spirit was on him that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, and that he was moved by the Spirit into the temple courts. That's a lot of referring to the Holy Spirit by Luke in such a short section. But I don't think it's any coincidence that Simeon waits on God and the Holy Spirit is on him. Simeon waits and the Spirit gives him revelation. Simeon waits and the Spirit moves him. That's because often in Scripture and also in our lives, it's in the secret and quiet places where we wait on God that the Holy Spirit's presence is the most noticeable. Not that the Spirit isn't in there in our busy and hurried lives. He is. We just have a hard time distinguishing between His voice and prompting when everything else is competing for our attention. It's why Luke 5 tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places in order to pray. The last couple of years, our church elders have taken time to go on a retreat in the fall. And we've gone to a farm out in South Surrey at Arosha where it is quiet and still. And when we're there, we spend a lot of time being quiet sitting or walking in silence, being still and just listening to what God might want to say to us. 
And each time, I'm quite amazed at how the Spirit speaks not only to us individually, but also to us as a group. It's so encouraging. But I think that many of us often struggle to hear from God or feel his leading in our lives. And we read passages like this one here where the Spirit speaks to Simeon and leads him so clearly. And we wonder, why, God, do you not do the same for us? Perhaps if we were more purposeful in our waiting on God, like Simeon, we would also hear from him. Maybe what we need in order to hear from the Spirit is to clear the deck from a lot of those things that keep us busy or distracted and meet with God in the lonely places too, anticipating his voice. Maybe if we did, perhaps we would sense his leading as clearly as well. Resilient disciples await. The story goes on to say that the Spirit led Simeon to this young couple. They allowed him to take their baby into his arms, and prompted by the Spirit, he delivers two speeches. The first one is an outpouring of praise to God. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now this first speech is astounding. In verse 33, it says that Mary and Joseph marveled. And the first thing I notice is the impact that meeting baby Jesus has on Simeon. He says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Essentially, Simeon is saying, I'm ready to die. I'm at peace. I'm completely fulfilled, satisfied, content with my life. Why? Because he met Jesus. Simeon has been waiting for Israel's comforter, the Lord's Messiah, and that's exactly who this baby is. Jesus. His name means Yahweh to the rescue. I remember visiting my grandmother in her care home when I was just 13 years old. And she said to me, I'm ready to die. And I was shocked. I didn't know what to do with that. I was 13 years old. I was terrified of death. And not only that, I was thinking about all the things that I would miss out on if I were to die. But my grandmother wasn't scared or thinking about what she would miss she was thinking about all she had to gain by being with Christ. He was her savior, and because of him, she was ready for him to dismiss her in peace. Simeon is phenomenal because he understood what so many other people in his day missed out on. That salvation, it's not a technique. It's not principles to live by. Rather, Simeon understood that salvation is a person, a particular person, the one who lay in his arms that day. And by placing his hope in Jesus, the Lord's Messiah, Simeon was at peace even to face death. I know often when I've talked to others about struggles with faith, they will say something to me along the lines of, if only I could see Jesus, I would have an easier time believing. 
When I look at a passage like this, I wonder whether it's more difficult to believe without seeing or to put your faith in an infant to be your savior. But if you place your hope and trust in Jesus, like Simeon, you can receive salvation and be at peace, even with death. Now, Simeon's second speech is a little different from the first. In verse 34, it says, Then Simeon blessed them. He blessed them and said to Mary, The child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. If this had a soundtrack to it, this is the part where it would go, dun, dun, dun. I'm not sure this is the kind of blessing Simeon thought this was. It's definitely not the usual niceties that young parents are used to hearing about their newborn children. Usually they hear things like, oh, he's so strong or she's so pretty, not he's going to cause people to fall and he will be a sign that will be spoken against. But we have to remember that the Holy Spirit was leading Simeon and had given him insight and understanding. And Simeon realizes that God's salvation is going to bring about a crisis. You see, if Jesus is the light of revelation, then some people will welcome the light. But other people, for whom the light uncovers and exposes, they will reject or hide from the light. Pastor Daryl Johnson writes, When the child grows to become a man, he posed a crisis for everyone that he encountered. Jesus offended the prejudices of his people. He lived by standards of right and wrong that challenge our hearts. He calls into question the values that shape our lives. His presence compels us to renounce our love affairs with lesser gods. Jesus comes into our lives not to walk with us down the paths we have chosen, but to stand in our way, calling us onto his path. He is the rock upon which we either build our lives and rise or over which we trip and fall. And I know that I've experienced this sort of turbulence in my own life and encounters with Jesus too. Even though I trust him, And yes, I want to follow his ways. There have been many times where Jesus has exposed things in me that need to change. Or I trip up by trying to go my own way and follow him at the same time. And that never works. I think the most daunting thing about what Simeon says here is that Jesus will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Think about that. He will reveal our thoughts. That's scary. I'd like to take my inside thoughts and just keep them between myself and nobody else. Even the idea that God knows all my thoughts and feelings is, to say the least, humbling. But that's okay. Jesus says, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. But this idea that he poses a crisis or even causes some pain in our lives in order to bring peace is not a new idea. You cannot have peace or healing or restoration in your life without 
first addressing those things that are wrong, and that's always going to be painful. A surgeon brings peace to our physical bodies by cutting them open because that is the only path to healing. A therapist helps the downcast by bringing up their past, confronting painful memories and terrible feelings. They make you feel worse before you can feel better. And whenever a person decides to truly follow Jesus, he will bring you peace, but not without some pain, struggle, and even a fight. 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote about two types of Christian. Of the resilient disciple, he says, they have two great marks about them. They may be known by their inward warfare as well as by their inward peace. But of the other type of Christian, he writes, there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapel every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They are buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. And much of this fight, friends, it is one when we go to those quiet places and wait on God. It was in the place of solitude that our Lord overcame his fear and won his fight with the opposition he felt to the cross and was able to say to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And if we are going to be true Christians, as Bishop Ryle says, if we're going to persevere in this fight, if we're going to be resilient like Simeon, then we also need to hear from the Holy Spirit and be led by him too. The Spirit who comes to us when we wait. The Spirit of Christ who, can, who we can anticipate and look forward to meeting with in our quiet and solitude. And we can look forward to meeting with him. Jesus says in Luke 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We don't have to wonder or worry if the Holy Spirit will show up. Jesus said the Father will give him. And so we can await him, fully expecting and listening for him. The final note in Simeon's message to Mary was this line, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This dark note foreshadows the pain that Mary will experience as she watches her child grow. She will worry about him when he leaves the family business to become a traveling teacher. Her concern for him will grow as his opposition grows. She will feel the sting of rejection when she tries to help him by doing what she thinks is best for him, only for him to reject her notions of what's best and to identify strangers as family too. And she'll experience a 
parent's greatest fear and pain, outliving her child. As people who are on the other side of this story, it's easy for us to see how the crucifixion always loomed in the shadows of Christ's life. But here Mary was, a young mother. She couldn't be expected to interpret or understand what Simeon was saying, and she's fallible, just like you and I. But what makes Mary so special is that she awaits. She doesn't know what God is up to, but throughout the first two chapters of Luke, Mary shows that she anticipates God doing incredible things. Twice in Luke 2, Mary experiences something unique, and Luke writes that she treasured these things and that she pondered them in her heart. To ponder meant that Mary thought deeply about them. And when she treasured these things, it meant that she savored them emotionally. These are things that one does in the silent places with God. So perhaps it was from Mary that Jesus learned to seek solitude in order to gain understanding and comfort from God. Well, the next character we meet in the story is a prophet named Anna. Luke tells us that Anna was very old and lived most of her life as a widow, and she too spent her life waiting on God. Verse 37 says she never left the temple, but she worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And then in verse 38, it says, Coming up to Mary and Joseph at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Though the text doesn't say explicitly, I'm sure that it was the Holy Spirit who gave Anna this insight that baby Jesus was the redemption that they were looking for. And I think there's a couple of other things that are very noteworthy about Anna. First, is her inclusion by Luke in the story shows us a pattern that Luke continues throughout his gospel. It's a pattern of pairs. A story about a man and then a story about a woman. It started in the very beginning of Luke's gospel. The angel Gabriel, with the birth narratives, visits two people. First Zechariah, and then Mary. And then in Luke 1, we have two songs being sung. Again, the first sung by Zechariah, and the next by Mary. Here we have two witnesses in the temple, Simeon and Anna, who both testify to the redemptive plan of God that will be fulfilled through Jesus. And Luke will include 27 pairs of story throughout his gospel, one concerning a man and the next a woman. And though you and I may take this kind of inclusion for granted in our day, Luke's emphasis on this is a remarkable aspect of Jesus' life, making it clear that this Savior came for both women and men, and this emphasis should not be lost on us. For women and men both then and today, this is good news. Now, the second thing I note about Anna is who she spoke to that day about the child. It says, all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. There it is again. All those who are looking forward, those who are anticipating, believers who await. You see, not everyone is looking forward. Some people live in the past, 
All the good old days are behind them, and they would rather reminisce about what God has done rather than anticipate what he will do next. And often when we live this way, we can end up romanticizing the past. I remember at one church I worked at, an encounter where a lady came into the office that day, and our church was about 200 people around there for the five years that I worked there. And on the day that she came in, she reminisced about the good old days where church attendance at this church was 500 people strong back in the heyday. And then she wondered, what's wrong with us today? And by the us, she meant the church staff. What's wrong with you guys today? However, when she left, our office administrator looked up the church records and the the highest peak that that church had ever had on a consistent basis was 230, about 30 more than what she recalled. 500, can you guess what Sunday that was or what service that was? Christmas Eve, right. The point is, when we live in the past, rather than being at the ready for what God will do next, it can often make us critical of what's happening currently. And often it's just our excuse for checking out. We've already did our time. Now it's somebody else's turn. Now other people, rather than living in the past, they can only live for what's happening in the present moment. They not only forget how faithful God has been to them in their past, but their attitude towards him now is, what have you done for me lately, God? As if God's obligated to just show up when and how we want him to. But like I said earlier, rarely is God's timing our timing, and seldom does he show up in the ways that we expect him to. If we forget the past, that's a huge detriment in our fight to be resilient disciples today. God calls his people throughout scripture again and again to remember what he did for them in the past in order for them to remain faithful to him in the present. Remember at the beginning of this story how Mary and Joseph, they came into the temple and that whole second ceremony, the presentation of the firstborn to God, the whole point of that ritual, Exodus 13 says, is so that when your child asks you, what does this mean? Then you have the opportunity to tell them all about the God who rescues. But remembering the past it's not for living in the past. It's for being faithful in the present, which requires looking back. But as this passage shows us, it's also meant for anticipating what is next. Like Anna and Simeon, it's expecting God and waiting on him. And resilient disciples await. Now you might be wondering, why does he keep using this phrase, resilient disciples? It's because this is what I want so much for myself and for my own children and what I want for all of us, to be resilient followers of Jesus. Being resilient doesn't mean that following Jesus won't be difficult or that we won't get knocked down by life's troubles. Resilient means being durable, flexible, even springy. Being a resilient disciple means that when we do get knocked down, we bounce back up and we continue to follow Jesus. When we feel bent out of shape by our own disobedience and sin, 
as resilient disciples, we know that we're not beyond repair and that we will keep coming back to Jesus who remolds us into his image. And resilient disciples, despite waiting on God for what might feel like an eternity, they don't resign themselves to things being just the way they are. They are durable, long-lasting, hard-wearing, and they live in hope-filled expectation. Paul says in Romans 12, keep your spiritual passion, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And resilient disciples await. They remember the past. They hold out hope for the future. They expect God to show up by his Holy Spirit in the present. And though they don't know how or when, they anticipate Christ's coming again. The question for each of us this morning is, are we resilient in this way? Some of you might think I'm tricking you with this kind of a question, like it's a catch-22. Like the only way to be resilient is to wait on God, which in turn makes us resilient. It's like those people who tell you or they warn you about praying for patience and that God will afflict you with a whole bunch of scenarios where you'll be tempted to be impatient. But if you are patient, ta-da, you passed the test and now you have patience. But that's not how God works. Remember what Jesus said? Your Father in heaven gives good gifts, right? He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's how Anna and Simeon were able to be resilient. How they were able to wait in expectancy all those years and not become apathetic. It wasn't through their sheer determination, or, but it was because the Holy Spirit was on them. And that's how you and I become resilient disciples too. It doesn't happen overnight. Simeon and Anna, they were seasoned veterans who were putting their faith into practice for many, many years. And friends, it does take practice. It takes going through the, it takes going through the, the disciplines of our faith. Simeon was righteous and devoted. Anna worshipped and fasted and prayed. But throughout their journey, God's Spirit was with them, comforting them, leading them, speaking to them. And he promises he will do the same for us. So what do we do with a message like this? First, I would want to encourage all of us to prioritize waiting on God and doing it by finding solitude in order to speak with him as well as giving him time and space to speak with us. Maybe that means you need to get up earlier in the morning. Or maybe that means you need to lock yourself away from your kids or your spouse or your roommates so that you can be alone for a moment. We have a new year approaching very, very quickly upon us. And many people make resolutions. This would be one to prioritize, waiting on God daily. Another takeaway from this story is for us to remember that Simeon and Anna are near the end of their lives, yet they weren't retired from ministry. They were still serving God full steam ahead. So they may not be doing the same stuff that they did in their 20s and 30s and 40s, but sometimes our most productive years 
in spiritual service for God come after our most productive years of earthly work. It is never too late to be ministered to by God, and it is never too late to minister for God. And I would contend, whatever age we are, young, old, or in between, if you feel stuck in your faith, like it's not going anywhere, or you feel disillusioned, then I would encourage you, serve. Serve. I have found so often that when we start ministering alongside other people, not only do we bring encouragement to others, but it also reignites in us the passion and joy and hope that our spirit is longing for as well. And finally, let me encourage you in this, that you are not alone. You're not alone. Certainly, we all need to find time to spend with God alone, but we also need to find time with God in the company of others. It is essential. Being here this morning is a good start, but also meeting with him in a small group of others is great too. And if you would like to find a home group or a small group, then talk to me or one of the other pastors on staff, and we would be glad to try and connect with you with a small group. Or if you want, you can meet with a group of us who pray on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock upstairs. Each Sunday I go there with great expectation uh, because I've been so encouraged by the enthusiasm and the hopeful expectation of my fellow disciples who meet there regularly as we wait on God to do great things. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And I invite you to, come, to stand with me. We can have great expectations for our God to do great things because he has done great things. He keeps doing them and he will do even more. Let's bow our heads and give him thanks. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this day and for the year ahead. I thank you that this comes hot on the heels of celebrating Christmas when we celebrate the incarnation of your son, Jesus. What a marvelous thing that you have done. And as we look throughout the entire church calendar and anticipate celebrating uh, your death and your resurrection and Pentecost and the coming of your spirit, would you use these things to remind us again and again and again of the marvelous things, God, that you have done for us because you love us. And would that give us hopeful expectation of what you want to do in each one of our lives, that you have great things planned for us, and that you call us to anticipate the good things that you are doing, to partner with you in them. And so would each one of us find that place where we can hear your still, small voice, where you would speak to us, comfort us, give us hopes and dreams, and grant us your peace. We love you, God. You're so worthy of all of our praise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.